Hello, my name is Mike. And I'm Marie. And we have been coming to Crossroads for two years. And we celebrated the 9th yesterday, 9th of November was our year anniversary from last year being baptised together. I'd gone to, I used to go to church in England, but Mike, it was me by myself. So I've kind of, that part of our life has always been one-sided. I'd come here on a Saturday night and it was, it would either be lots of people in here or not so many. I always felt so lonely and I can't explain it. It's because I knew Mike wasn't on board. It took me a long time to, um, to, to find God, really. And um, I, when I was a kid, I, I used to go to Sunday school in England. And my stepdad said to me, he said, listen, he said, I know the Bible inside out. He said, and you don't have to go to church if you don't want to. He said, what's it going to do for you? And I didn't know at that time what anything like that could do for me. Um, I desperately wanted to be baptised, but knew that Mike still hadn't decided. But I ended up going to get one of the towels and walking out. And we'd got in the car to go to have our dinner. And Mike asked me how I felt. And I said, I felt elated. I felt it was just the peace I had come over me, which I really couldn't explain, that I knew I'd made that decision, whether it be by myself or not. But I did tell Mike, I said, the only thing I feel very sad about is I don't want to go to heaven by myself. After being with Mike 47 years, I just didn't, the idea of, of, of doing that by myself was, was hard. Now, as I say, two weeks before the baptism, I sat outside the church for about an hour one day, just thinking about what I wanted to do. And um, they, then I, I went into the church and spent probably another half an hour to an hour there, um, just thinking about it, just thinking and thinking. I then went outside the church again. I think I'd made my mind up by then that I was going to do it. And I asked uh, Carl West for if he would baptise me. When that day came last year on, on November 9th, I think we both have had a new beginning. You know, we've been 47 years married, but it's like we it's been a rebirth. And that's something that I can't kind of explain but anybody that experiences it would know what I mean. And we are at peace with each other. We're certainly at peace with God. And it's just made our life whole, and as opposed to me being one side and Mike being the other side. And that's how it used to be. And when he decided to, to make that commitment, I, it, it, it could, if, I'd have, if he'd have bought me the biggest diamond ring, I wouldn't have been any please that then I was when he that day but when don't he let this go to your head <laughs> <laughs> seriously it, it, it's just the best feeling the best feeling ever When it comes to Christmas, there are wildly divergent points of view, and there are very different emotions associated. Christmas has long been celebrated 
throughout the civilized world even before the discovery of America, more than any other holiday. And for most of us here today, it is indeed the most wonderful time of the year. Our families are caught up in the annual celebration of God's love that was made real when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But there are about three groups of people that are on the other side of Christmas. With each passing year, it seems Christmas comes under more intense attack by the politically correct crowd. But don't you think it's blatantly inconsistent of them to have no problem with Kwanzaa, which is a week-long celebration of African culture. They have no problem with Hanukkah, which is an eight-day festival commemorating Jewish history. They have no trouble with Ramadan, which is a month of ritual fasting and prayer for Muslims. They don't have any problem with the pagan celebration of the winter solstice, which is just this alignment of the sun and the earth in such a way as to give people an excuse to partay. But the leftists say, Christmas has got to go. And at the very least, they want concessions. Your Christmas tree needs to be called a holiday tree, and you don't wish people Merry Christmas. You wish them happy holidays. And there's no more public nativity scenes, no more school Christmas programs as far as they're concerned. Well, then you have another group, in addition to the politically correct folks. These are people that are kind of like Ebenezer Scrooge out there. They're just naturally disagreeable. They're like the Grinch, you know. His heart was two sizes too small. They're, they're bitter about life in general, and the whole idea of joy at this season just pushes all their buttons. So they object to Christmas, not on the basis of unbelief, not on the basis of religion. They just find the whole idea of joy to be unappealing, so they project their negative socialization onto the holiday. Well, then there's a, another large contingent of folks who don't resist Christmas at all. They love the whole Thanksgiving to Christmas season, but they've reinvented these holy days. They have recast these holidays to fit their secular approach, and so Thanksgiving is all about food and family and friends and football, and it has nothing to do with the renewal of our personal gratitude to God for His many blessings. And so they sit down to eat Thanksgiving dinner, and it's a little awkward, just kind of an awkward moment there. They don't really give thanks. Instead, they say something like, I propose a toast, or they say something like, okay, let's dig in. And for these same folks, Christmas is, it's a little about giving. It's a lot about getting. It's about getting gifts. It's about getting the lights up on the house. It's about getting lit up at the Christmas party as an excuse for bad behavior. And for secularists, it's all about the warm fuzzies of the season. The Christmas story in the Bible, well, <laughs> that's just beside the point. But as people of literate Christian faith, we know that the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem is the hinge of human history. Everything changed when He was born. He made all things new. His birth meant Emmanuel had come. Emmanuel, God with us. 
And few passages in the Bible clarify the purpose of Jesus coming more than his parable of the lost sons in Luke, the 15th chapter. And I say lost sons because both sons were alienated from their father. One son was lost in a far country. The other was lost in the father's house. They had both distanced themselves from their faithful father. They both needed to come home. One needed to come home geographically, literally, and one needed to come home in his heart. Well, today I want to talk to you about the younger son, and in just a few minutes, Patrick is going to come up and talk to you about the older son. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11, we're introduced to the younger son who said to his father one day, Dad, I can't wait for you to die. I want my inheritance now. So, the father divided his property between both of his sons, and the younger son promptly took his wealth and left for a distant country. And shortly, he had squandered everything in wild living. Well, then there was a severe famine in the land, and he was destitute. He was broke. And so, this Jewish boy hired on with a pig farmer. And evidently, it wasn't a very well-paying job because he didn't even have enough for food, he found himself desiring to eat pig slop. Things had gotten bad enough, he determined to return home. He was going to ask his father for a job, so he rehearsed, rehearsed his speech and he set out for home. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He had to be looking for him. And he was filled with compassion for him and he ran to him and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son began to confess his failure, but the father broke in and said, quick, bring, bring the best robe and ring and sandals. And he called for the fatted calf to be butchered for a feast because he said, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And then we find these words that close this section of the text. So they began to celebrate. <laughs> Charles Dickens, English author of the classic A Christmas Carol, once wrote about this parable, the prodigal son is the finest short story ever written. And it is a story that touches all of us at some point. Some of you here this morning might be parents of a prodigal. And so you, you identify with the heart pain of the father here and then many more of us have been, or we are like this younger son. I want to focus on him this morning, and I want to focus on this. What was it that took him away from the father's love? What took him away from the father's house? And then I want us to discover what it was that brought him back again. First, what took him away from the father's house? Two influences. Number one, he thought that money is where it's at. Look at verse 12. Give me my share. Now let's be honest, friends. This quest for money that was in the heart of the younger son wasn't even worried about offending his father. I can't wait for you to die. I want my inheritance now. The fact is, the father's greatest competition for the affection of his children in this parable, and today is the quest for money. 
Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So let me ask a few questions this morning. What are you thinking when you hear about someone winning a huge amount of money in a lawsuit settlement or in a lottery drawing? Do you find yourself envious down deep when you read about a 22-year-old professional athlete who gets a multi-million dollar signing bonus? Do you involuntarily turn green when you hear the name of Mark Zuckerberg or Bill and Melinda Gates? Do you think, wouldn't it be nice when you hear about someone else receiving a significant inheritance? Or let me ask it this way. Are you uncomfortable when you go to church and hear convicting Bible teaching on the subject of money? Or do you bristle when you're challenged to give generously to God's work? Would you say that you have a positive attitude or a negative attitude about financial stewardship? Listen, friends. Money always has been and it still is the best lure in Satan's tackle box. It hooked, it hooked the younger son and it's hooked millions of people living today. Well, what else? Well, the second thing is he thought that the world is where it's at. The bright lights, the fast crowds, the good times. Verse 13, the younger son set off for a distant country and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. He wanted to get away from the authority of his father. He felt confined. He wanted to be free to indulge himself without any restraints, without any moral accountability. And today the world still takes people away from the heavenly father and his church family in droves, in droves. And the time in life when this is most evident is during the teen years. It's during the college years. That's when the world looks really, really good. And yet, this kind of life devoted to money, devoted to the world, has an inevitable consequence. Material and sensual self-indulgence has a consequence, and here it is in verse 14, he began to be in need. That day will come. It came for the prodigal. It comes for anyone who is devoted to this material world. Sometimes the need is physical due to alcoholism or drug addiction or venereal disease or an unplanned pregnancy being broke, being jobless. Sometimes it's a physical need. Sometimes it's a relational need. The only people left around you are those who share your weakness or share your misery. None of the party crowd is around. They've moved on. Sometimes the need is not physical. It's not relational. It's more emotional. It's feelings of failure, feelings of shame, feelings of guilt, feelings of estrangement from God that are deep and regret haunt you at night and emptiness confronts you in the morning. And so eventually, 
Eventually, the protective love and the wise counsel and the faithful provision of the Father begin to look more attractive than they once did. And this is the turning point for the prodigal. He's ready to come home. And uh, Kyle Eidelman has captured this process of returning to the Father in his recent book entitled, Aha. There were two influences that took the prodigal away from the Father. And look at the influences that brought him back. Aha, an acrostic for awakening, honesty, and action. First awakening, verse 17, he came to his senses. Maybe your version says he came to himself. Here's what it means. He woke up. He suddenly realized that what he'd walked away from and what he'd tried to shut out of his life was really what he wanted most. So I wonder if you've had this awakening. It often starts with the voice of conscience. It often starts with the nagging feeling that something is not right, something is missing, something must change. That's what the rich young ruler thought when he came to Jesus and said, what am I missing? What do I lack yet? This awakening needs to happen. You've got to come to your senses. You've got to come to yourself. And this awakening could happen for everyone in this room today, if it hasn't already. Secondly, there's honesty. Look at this in verse 18. He said to himself, I will go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned. And the importance of this step cannot be overstated. It's critical to the process of coming home to the father. Being humble enough to admit your need for forgiveness, your need for restoration. Being willing to admit that you have sinned. This humility means the death of our pride. This humility means the end of our self-reliance, our self-sufficiency. Did you catch it in the video when Mike said that he sat outside the church for an hour thinking, thinking, thinking? What was he doing? He was being honest with himself. He had had an awakening, and he was underpinning it with honesty. Honesty is this perpetual declaration of your dependence on God not your independence from God. And this honesty could show itself in every life in this room today if it hasn't already. The third step back to the Father is action. Verse 20, so he got up and went to his Father. This is what made his decision to return to the Father a reality. Wouldn't have happened if he hadn't got up and gone back to his Father. He had to get up and come home. It requires taking an action step, demonstrating your faith. And for us, it's an initial, it's a physical act of obedience in Christian baptism. The only command given in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit in the entire Bible, only one command given in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Action. Taking a step, acting on your awakening, acting on your honesty. Our servers will go now to prepare the emblems of communion for us, and as they go, I want to say a final word about the younger son. This younger son learned something that we must all learn. He learned that the real wealth, hear me, the real wealth is the riches of his father's grace. It's not the accumulation of money. 
That's not the real wealth. He learned that the real party is in the Father's house. The real party, the real celebration is in the Father's house. It's not, it's not in the world. And every week as Christians, when we assemble for worship, we re- revisit our own aha moment around the Lord's table. We revisit that time when we had an awakening, that time when we had honesty, that time when we took action. And the emblems of communion remind us that the body of Jesus was bruised, represented by the bread, and the blood of Jesus was shed, represented by the cup. That happened on the cross, where He took our place. He died so that we could have a new life, a new life now and forever. And as Christ followers, during this time of communion, we take the emblems, we hold them in our hands with reflection, with thanksgiving, and then we eat and drink as we're privately prepared to remember Him, remember Jesus who made forgiveness possible, Jesus who restored us to the embrace of our Heavenly Father. Pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for that day in time and space when Jesus made his way up to Calvary with the wood of the cross beam on his back. And there, he who sinned, he who had no sin became sin for us. There on the cross, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. We thank you for his sacrifice for us. Makes your love and grace real to us. And in these moments, we want to remember him who died in our place that we might live forevermore. In his name, amen. Well, this past week, I had a breakfast with a friend of mine who's recently moved to the area. And from a professional standpoint, he's been rather successful. He has a great family, very well educated, and grown up in the church. Now, he's one of those guys that you meet and you walk away instantly thinking to yourself, I wish I could just be more like him. Now, the only thing going against him is the fact that he has a son who happens to be a UK fan. Uh, And so I spent time praying for him then. But you know, after about 45 minutes of talking about college basketball and what our college plans or what our Christmas plans are, uh, our conversation then took a turn towards deeper matters. You see, though my friend grew up in the church for the past 40 years or so, it wasn't until recently that he began seeing his need to be saved by Christ and Christ alone. His relationship with God has been somewhat of a journey throughout the course of his life. And so rather intrigued by my friend's recent conversion, I asked him what brought him to that point of realizing that he needed Jesus. At what point did he come to the end of himself and realize that it was only by the cross that he could be saved? And this is what he told me. He said, Patrick, for many years I've been a relatively good person. I've always been very generous with my money and I've served those around me. I've always been a part of different charities But one morning, I literally woke up and I realized that I couldn't buy or serve my way into heaven. Translation, for many years he had the appearance of a Christian, but inwardly, 
he was disconnected from God. I mean, on the outside, things looked rather good. He was put together. But you see, deep down, he was simply confined to empty moralistic rules that promise salvation but can never deliver assurance. I mean, after all, when you are relying upon your obedience and your good deeds to connect you back to God, how do you ever really know that you've done enough, right? And so in Luke chapter 15, Jesus uses this story to describe two different types of people who are alienated from God. And you see, somewhere in this story is your story. There's the younger brother, which Ken talked about a moment ago, and they are those of us who have blatantly rejected Christ in life, and our decisions during that time definitely reflect that inward rebellion. And then there are those of us today who will resonate more with the older brother, which we're going to look at in just a moment. Older brothers look good on the outside. Their church attendance is rather impressive, and participation is rather impressive. But you see, their heart is nowhere near God. On the outside, the older brother and the younger brother look as if they couldn't be more different. But you see, below the surface, they're the exact same. Both are trying to control their life. Younger brothers try to control their life by rejecting God's laws, while older brothers try to control their life by keeping all of God's laws. In either scenario, you have an individual who is attempting to be his own savior in this life. And so in Luke chapter 15, Jesus introduces this older brother and things kind of take an interesting turn because we know that the older brother represents the religious leaders and the Pharisees who were there that day hearing Jesus tell the story of the prodigal sons. Now it's as if Christ is saying when the older brother is introduced that those who are religious in this life are in a far worse situation than the tax collectors and sinners because religious people just tend to be completely numb to their true condition. I mean, you will never be found until you first realize that you are lost. And so if you're following along, the, the younger brother has come home, and so uh, the older brother hears of this. If you're following along, Luke chapter 15, here's what we read in verse 25. <clears throat> Jesus says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. All right, so a huge party is being thrown here. Now, when the older son enters the story here, we can immediately identify some stark contrast between what religion looks like and what a real thriving relationship with the God of the universe looks like. Now, the older brother was enslaved to a type of morality that resulted in the same condition as the younger brother, and that was being lost. Now, sadly, in our culture, being religious and following Jesus have somehow become synonymous Now, some of you are probably a little bit confused right now because you've just assumed your entire life that being religious and being a Christian are the exact same thing. But there's one thing that totally separates the two. It's called grace. And so throughout the course of the next few moments, let's see how religion and grace weigh against one another. The first one is this. Religion says that I must maintain a certain image But grace says, I am free to be broken. Now, it's no coincidence that uh, Jesus first introduces the older brother by telling us that he was out in the field working for his father. And that's what religion is all about. It's all about working. And Jesus said this to flaunt the older brother's obedience, yet his law-keeping was just his way of self-medicating his true condition, being distant from the dad. You see, had he loved and been one with the father, he would have rejoiced when his younger brother came back home just like his dad did. 
But you see, when you're enslaved to rules, when it's all about this image-based belief system, you always feel this incessant pressure to cover over the guilt, the shame, regret, pain, and the inner darkness that resides within each of us, right? And so for you, it becomes more about your look than your heart. Your behavior somehow takes precedence over the condition of your soul. Now, by a brief show of hands, how many of, you, um, how many of you know what this is or have one of these in your home? Come on, just don't be ashamed. I'm free to be broken here, all right? Now, <laughs> uh, for those of you that don't know, don't know what this is, it's called Elf on the Shelf. And upon receiving one of these little guys from the North Pole, your family is to name him whatever your family decides. And so my kids have affectionately named Elf on the Shelf Daryl. All right? Now, uh, the book that came with Daryl says that Daryl flies back to the North Pole every single night by magical powers and conveys to Santa who's been naughty or who's been nice. And so this little guy during the Christmas season is supposed to foster good behavior, supposed to foster obedience. My wife says that it's also been good getting the kids to obey too. All right? Now, in my opinion, this is just kind of a fun tradition that your family may take part in each year as Christmas approaches. But what happens? What happens when you think that all God cares about is is how you act? I mean, where does a life lead when you think that God is some cosmic force constantly overshadowing you, tallying up all your wrong and your good? Honestly, Elf on the Shelf isn't much different than some of us think God interacts with us on a day-to-day basis. And so if that's you, you've probably responded in one of two ways. You've either, A, you've run from God because you somehow think that he has exhausted his grace upon your life for some decision or decisions that you've made in your past. Or, or you've attempted religion in an effort to outweigh all the bad in your life by doing a lot of good. But you see, the Bible says that God has provided a better way for us. What if I told you that God's grace is not only sufficient to save you from your sin, but his grace is sufficient enough to sustain you during those moments when you just absolutely blow it? I mean, my story goes like this. I can look back and point to stupid, disobedient, prideful decisions that I've made, and you know what my experience has been? Never once has Jesus served me with divorce papers. And so when you enter into that type of relationship and you experience that kind of freedom, you can go from saying that I must maintain this certain image to declaring that I am free to be broken. One pastor that I know of said it like this, if the biggest sinner that you know of isn't you, you don't know you very well. You see, only grace can accomplish what religion promises but fails to deliver. And that's a transformed life. And so today is going to be the day when many will step away from enslavement and towards freedom. You see, baptism is a declaration to the church and to those around you that image doesn't have control over you. Rather, you're humbling yourself before people saying, I'm a sinner. But Jesus has come to save me in spite of me. Another contrast between religion and grace that we see in this parable that Jesus tells is this. Religion says God owes me for my obedience. But grace says God owes me nothing, yet has given me everything. I want you to look at what the older brother tells his dad after the father pleads for him to come in and enjoy this this party, this rave for his brother. Verse 29. But he answered his father, look, 
All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you know what, Dad? You never once gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Now you see, older brothers keep track of their obedience and good deeds just so they can receive rewards from God. I mean, they're just close to God so that they can have the benefits of God, right? About a week ago, I was putting my three-year-old son to bed and uh, I said, hey buddy, I just want you to know I I love you so much. Well, silence kind of fell over the room, and being the shallow dad that I am, I said, buddy, do you love daddy back? And <laughs> Silence still lingered, and then he said, I love your car. <laughs> I brought him into this world, I can take him out, you know? <laughs> I appreciated his honesty, but you know what? I mean, we may not say it out loud like that, but I think that's how a lot of us, we approach our relationship with God. I mean, if you look back on your life, the motivation for obedience in your your life is just to receive favor from God. I mean, let's be honest, you may not really want God. You just want his stuff. And so like friends with benefits, you don't really care for him. You just want what he provides. And I think that's a lot of our stories in here. You know, a moment ago, I said that everybody in here is going to resonate either with the older brother or the younger brother. And I think for me personally, I'm probably somewhere in between the two. I know this will probably come as a shock to a lot of you in here and in the chapel, but I do have this rebellious side to me. Um, there's a reason why back in my hometown, police officers know me by name, all right? I mean, I spent more time in the high school principal's office than in the classroom Unfortunately, my report card was always evidence of that, you know. But then there's this other part of me where I think I'm a lot like the older brother because I think my obedience should pay off in some way, right? I mean, sometimes I think that when I serve God, I'm somehow doing him a favor. And I may not say it out loud, but sometimes I walk around like I'm the most entitled child of God. And so if you're always expecting God to bless you, If you're walking around thinking that you are deserving of something because of an act of obedience or lifelong faithfulness in your life, and Jesus, he may be be your friend. Jesus may be your teacher. He may be your example. But Jesus is not your savior. One author says it like this, sin is not just about breaking the rules It's about trusting so much in your obedience that you become your own God, your own savior and judge. And so today, some of you must decide if you'll follow Jesus for who he is rather than what he can do for you and what he can provide. And you see, that's just it. It's a decision. It's only a decision that you can make for you, not someone else. A lot of us in here, we grew up in the church, but we are still living off our parents' faith. But you've got to decide. You may inherit your parents' money, but you will not inherit their faith. You've got to own it yourself. I've told you before that uh, I was born into a Catholic family over in Louisville, Kentucky. And when I was a baby, our priest at the time, uh, my parents had me sprinkled by our priest. I have to tell you that I'm incredibly grateful for that moment in the Catholic Church because what my parents were saying at a very young age was that they wanted me to grow up to know and love and serve Jesus. Now, years later, my family would switch to a church much like Crossroads in the Louisville area, 
And I came to this realization that I couldn't just inherit my parents' faith. It wasn't just some, uh, I couldn't just blindly receive it from them. Rather, it was a decision that I had to make upon myself when I realized that apart from Christ, I am hopeless and lost, and I am completely undeserving of His grace. And so when I made that decision, just like what the Bible says, it was paired with the decision to be baptized. Now, when I was baptized in our newer church, it might look as if I was completely doing away with my experience in the Catholic church when I was a baby. But you see, it wasn't that at all. My parents would later tell me, Patrick, you weren't nullifying what we did for you when we had you sprinkled. You were only completing that which we began in you at a very young age. You were making your faith your own. And you see, I know that my story is pretty similar to a lot of us in here and those of us who are in the chapel right now. You were sprinkled as a baby, but you really have never made that decision to make Christ your Lord and your Savior. Others of us, we love Jesus. We've maybe served Him for many years. We've attended church. You've just never followed through with that step of baptism. Either way, today is the day for you to declare the salvation and your identity that you've been given because of what Christ has done for you upon the cross Now, I get it. The one thing that may keep you from taking this step is your fear of what your parents might think. I mean, after all, you don't want it to look like you're doing away with what they did for you at a young age. I want you to know that I get that. I've been there before. Me too. I have the (laughs) t-shirt. But at some point, at some point, you have to make a decision apart from fear of what others may think. Jesus never promised us that following him would be easy. He never said that it wasn't going to cost us something. And so if you are going to be baptized today, I want you to realize that just because you get into these waters, it doesn't mean that your life is going to be easy. It doesn't mean that your surgery is going to be successful. It doesn't mean that you're going to find a spouse in the next year or two, or you're going to finally come come across a positive pregnancy test. No, but when you enter into a real relationship with Christ... You will quickly learn that you deserve nothing because of the sin in your life. Yet you have been given absolutely everything because of Jesus' finished work upon the cross. And what we've been given because of that is something called grace. Well, the last contrast that we see between religion and grace is this. Religion says that I am accepted based upon what I do. But grace says I am adopted because of what's done. Check out verse 31 as Jesus draws this story to a close. He says, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, he was dead. He was dead. But now he's alive again. He was lost and is now found. Now, what's astonishing here is that the father pursues the older brother after the older brother rejects and offends him on many different levels in an honor and shame society. And so instead of getting on the older son for being a spoiled brat, and rather than calling him out for trying to leverage his obedience for his own good, the father steps towards the older son and he says two radical words. He says, my Son. You are not accepted because of what you do. You are accepted because of what's already done. And so my question for you today is simply this. 
Will you finally come home? I mean, will you at last quit rejecting the invitation to join God's family and declare your identity through Christ and Christ alone? A friend of mine says it like this, God doesn't want more from you, God wants more of you. 2,000 years ago, a little baby by the name of Jesus was born in a small town called Bethlehem because when he looked down, he saw this world that was enslaved to the things that we thought would bring us freedom and significance. But the Bible says that Christ, he, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he came and he was born in a lowly manger that eventually was led to a, a Roman cross where he was crucified on our behalf because of the sin in our life. You see, Jesus, he did not consider the benefits of being the God of all creation because when he looked at you, he couldn't stand the thought of spending eternity without you in it. You see, only the selfless love of Jesus can soften any heart and bring any older or younger brother back home. And so maybe you're thinking to yourself right now, you know what, Patrick, I I believe that, but what do I need to do? What's my next step? Well, the Bible says that once you've come to the realization that Christ has died for you, and apart from what he's done for you on the cross, that you are hopeless and lost, that you are to repent of your sin, to turn towards Christ, and trust him, not just with your eternity, which is easy, but to trust him with your day-to-day decisions, with your life. And so that decision to trust and to turn to Christ is seen in the act of baptism. It's an act of total surrender. Now, what this does not mean is that you must have your life completely together before being baptized. It doesn't mean that you have to have everything cleaned up and you must understand everything, that you must come to a full knowledge of what everything in the Bible says. No, when you are baptized, you are simply declaring that you are giving over the control of your life to a God who loves you very, very much and wants the best for you. In the New Testament, um, there's a book called Acts, and, and in the book of Acts, we're given portraits of the early church and how the gospel message was spreading like wildfire throughout the first century. And in chapter 2, a guy by the name of Peter, a close friend of Jesus, he stood up in the city of Jerusalem and he preached the very first gospel message to a crowd of religious and irreligious people. In other words, younger brothers and older brothers were there that day. His message went something like this, you know that Jesus guy that walked these streets just over a month ago? Yeah, he was the son of God. He's the one that's going to connect us back to God. And do you know what you did to him? You nailed him to a cross. He said, but only, only through Christ can you be connected back into a relationship with God. And so the crowd that day said, oh, oh my goodness, what what do we do now? We believe this. Verse 38, Acts chapter 2. Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so if you're ready to come home today, I invite you to mark your decision through the act of baptism. And so if you've never been baptized before, if you don't remember your baptism, if you want a fresh start in life, Maybe you were baptized for all the wrong reasons in your past and you're ready to repent of your sin and turn towards Jesus, making him your Lord and Savior. Today is your day. Most of you did not come prepared to be baptized today. That's okay. We got you covered, all right? We have towels, we have t-shirts, we have shorts and clean underwear. I mean, is there anything worse than having wet underwear or dirty underwear in the middle of winter? I think not. 
All three baptistries up here are heated. We have professional photographers taking photos of every baptism so you can always remember this moment. A video of this service is going to be posted online so you can show friends and family members that maybe aren't here today to share with you in that moment. Some are worried about their hair getting messed up or their makeup will come undone. Ladies have come up with this excuse too. But we've got hair dryers and hairspray, makeup and deodorant and other toiletry needs. And if you're afraid of crowds and you're maybe more of a private person, suppose you won $1 million during the halftime show at a Colts game, would you let the fear of crowds keep you from claiming that prize? And yet how much more? How much greater of a debt has been paid because of what Jesus has done for you upon the cross And so if I'm talking right to you today, rather than coming to us down front, we're going to come to you, all right? Scattered all throughout this room and in the chapel in just a few moments, there will be volunteers in orange-colored shirts ready to receive you and walk you backstage. These people will, um, will pray with you. They will answer any remaining questions that you may have. And what you need to understand is that God is never a God of tomorrow. He's never a God that's going to tell you to wait. He's always a God of now and in the moment and of the present. And so if that's you and you're ready, I want you to take this step right now. And if that's you, I want you to make this prayer, your conversation with God in this moment. And then when I get done and we get done praying, we're going to stand up and we're going to worship as a church. And you just make your way. You step out of the road and you make your way towards a volunteer in an orange-colored shirt. And they're going to walk you backstage and uh, calm any anxieties that you may have. And so if you're ready to be baptized, if you're ready to claim Christ as Lord, you, you make this your prayer right now, okay? Let's pray. Father, I have sinned and I have disconnected myself from a relationship with you. God, that's definitely my story and that's a lot of our stories in here today. God, we've all rebelled. God, apart from what Christ has done for us on the cross, I and, and we, we have no hope. And so in this moment, declare that I am yours. And God, me personally, I declare that all over again. Jesus, you died for my sin. There's nothing I can do to accept the gift of salvation. So Lord, I accept what's already been given to to me. I am all yours. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You go ahead and stand up. We're going to worship. And if you have a decision to make, make your way towards a volunteer in orange shirt. And then we're going to worship.